Escape Pod 110 June 14, 2007 Today's story, Frankie the Spook, by Mike Resnick Hello and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely. I want to talk briefly today about one of the dangers of fiction. I know what that phrase evokes for a lot of you. The dangers of Harry Potter and the dangers of video games and all that jazz. The idea seems to be that people can't tell the difference between fiction and reality. And that's bunk. Real fiction lovers can always tell the difference. Reality is that boring place that makes you want to get back to fiction. But here's the subtler side of that. Fiction is a place where life is simpler, and ideals tend to have more power and success than they have in the real world. It's a more colorful life, and often a more dangerous one, but those colors give it a false clarity that don't represent how life really works. A character in a novel can take a stand on principle, fall in love for a principle, even die on principle, and we admire that. But an actual human life consists of dozens or hundreds of principles competing and guiding us differently. In real life, someone who directs all their energies to a single principle, who only cares about one issue, is more often scary than admirable. These are both strengths. It's not bad that fiction authors reduce complexity. If they didn't, stories couldn't have a beginning or an end. But a lot of us who think in narrative terms, I include myself in this, tend to want to reduce real life the same way. I've been guilty of assuming that every problem in my life has a solution if I can just be clever enough to find it, because there are no unsolvable problems in fiction. But when you get two or more real people together, there often are. On the upside, two or more real people together are also surprising and funny and fascinating in ways that transcend fiction. And while ideals are important, we can't put them ahead of the life around us. We don't have authors guaranteeing us a plot, so holding out for the ideal job, the ideal house, the ideal relationship, may mean you get to the end of your own book with nothing. It's good to dream, but it's better to take what you can live with and construct a story with it that you can love. Today's story presents a different take on the fiction process. We present Frankie the Spook by Mike Resnick. This one's a comedy, so we're pretty sure it's unlikely to make anyone cry, with the possible exception of Shakespeare scholars. Mr. Resnick is, according to Locus, the award-winningest short science fiction author. He lives in Cincinnati, and also on the Resnick Yahoo group. This story first appeared in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in October 1990. Forsooth, it's story time. Frankie the Spook by Mike Resnick Drawing her close to him while breathing heavily with unspent passion, he slid his hand down the small of her back, around to her ribcage, up under her. The image of Sir Francis Bacon stopped reading and winced. This is really quite dreadful, he announced firmly. Really? asked Marvin Pilch. Bacon nodded. Even worse than the last batch, you have set a new standard of ineptitude. Marvin sighed. I was afraid of that. And this reference to a boob, continued Bacon. What exactly is a boob? A tit. I beg your pardon. A female breast. 
According to my dictionary programs, it must be a very unintelligent female breast to be termed a boob. Well, said Marvin with a shrug, when you get right down to cases, I suppose it is. It doesn't make any sense, continued Bacon. What slang do you use for the elbow? Do you call it a fool? Not very often, admitted Marvin. Ah, said Bacon. Then you think that the elbow is more intelligent than the breast. Marvin shrugged again. I have to admit it's not a subject that I've given a lot of thought to. I know. In fact, if there is a subject anywhere in the universe that you have given a lot of thought to, you certainly haven't incorporated it in your writings. Actually, there is one subject that I've given considerable thought to. Oh, said Bacon, arching an eyebrow. And what is that? Marvin smiled. You. Somehow I foresaw that the conversation would eventually take this course, said Bacon sardonically. Then you know what I'm going to ask you. Certainly. Marvin leaned forward and squinted at Bacon's image on his computer screen. Will you do it? Will the greatest writer in the history of the human race ghostwrite your pitiful little novel? sneered Bacon. Absolutely not. But you ghosted for Shakespeare, protested Marvin. That's why I had my computer assemble you. Marvin, go write limpware and leave me alone. It's called software. Whatever it's called, it is obvious to me that you are meant to work with computers. Your ignorance of the world at large is superseded only by your ignorance of the English language. That's why I need you. No. But I've got a contract. No. And it's got penalty clauses for coming in late. Then submit it on time. And if the editor rejects it, I've got to return the advance. What is that to me? If I have to return the advance, I'll have to pawn the computer to raise the money. Good, said Bacon. Then I'll soon be speaking with someone who has a serious interest in exchanging ideas rather than stealing them. I didn't steal anything, snapped Marvin. Marvin, I hate to be blunt, but you haven't had an original idea in your nondescript life, Bacon grimaced. At least Shakespeare knew he wanted to write plays. And you helped him. Helped him? repeated Bacon furiously. Who do you think wrote all those plays? His image made an effort to recover its self-control. The man was a fool, a complete and utter fool. To his dying day, he never understood why I wouldn't write Henry the Ninth. And yet, even now, centuries later, that dimwit gets all the credit for my work, my creativity, my genius. And you have the gall to ask me to become a ghostwriter again? I didn't know you were so bitter, said Marvin. Did you know that that moron wanted to set Troilus and Cressida in Rome? Rome's a very pretty city, I'm told, offered Marvin. Bah! Turn me off! I can't, said Marvin. The book is due in two weeks. Rome's a very pretty city, I'm told, echoed Bacon sarcastically. Perhaps you can hide there from your creditors. You're not being very responsive, complained Marvin. I'm certain that I will regret having asked, but how did a literary maladroit like you receive a commission to write a book in the first place? My ex-wife's cousin is an editor. I got the assignment while we were still married. Anyone who buys a manuscript from you deserves exactly what he gets, said Bacon, which, in my professional opinion, will be nothing.
But I can't return the advance, whined Marvin. It's already spent. A Shakespearean tragedy, said Bacon mockingly. What do you want? Peace and quiet. I mean to write the book. Go away and leave me alone. I can't. I have no one else to turn to. You should have thought of that before taking on such an awesome responsibility. After all, not every artiste can achieve the high literary standard required of... What was the name of this magnum opus? Meter Maids and Bondage. Bacon grinned. Do have fun. I'm begging you, said Marvin desperately. And I'm refusing you. Name your price. What possible use have I for money in my present condition? replied Bacon. What can you use? Solitude. What else? Bacon stared out at him for a long moment, his eyes narrowed, his lean fingers rubbing his chin thoughtfully. If I agree to write this book for you, I will want a favor in return. Anything. I intend to write my autobiography, which will end the controversy concerning the authorship of Shakespeare's plays once and for all. It will be your obligation to make certain that it is published and publicized throughout the world until every new edition of Shakespeare names me as the true author. That could take decades. I'm more than five hundred years old, replied Bacon. I have a few decades to spare. But I don't, protested Marvin. It was nice knowing you, Marvin. Be sure to turn out the light when you leave the room. You wouldn't settle for a nice plaster bust of you in the local art museum? Goodbye, Marvin. How about a poster? I've got a friend who owns a silkscreen plant. Bacon merely stared at him and made no reply. All right, all right, said Marvin in resignation. It's a deal. I have no way of forcing you to keep your promise, said Bacon. But as there's a god in heaven, I'll haunt you every day and night of your life if you should break your word to me. I said I'd do it. All right, replied Bacon. I'm going to need a little backgrounding before I start writing. It's just a sex book. It won't be when I get through with it. Marvin shrugged. All right, anything you need, just ask. If I don't have it, I'll get it. Let's start with some information. Such as? What is a meter maid? Bacon finished ghosting the manuscript in nine days. Marvin changed eleven words that he didn't understand, the only eleven corrections the stunned copy editor made on the manuscript before sending it off to the printer, and then decided to take a month off before looking for a new way to make a living and fend off his creditors. As it turned out, he only had to wait nineteen days. It's a hit! Plays are hits. Books are blockbusters. Bacon corrected him. Well, whatever it is, we're rich! Marvin paused. By the way, how the hell did you learn a word like blockbuster? They didn't have blockbusters back in your time. I'm cooped up in here all day and all night with a bunch of word processing programs, answered Bacon. So, having nothing better to do with my time, I read the dictionaries. Oh, said Marvin. Well, getting back to the news, we actually got reviewed in the New York Times. They called it a mock Elizabethan erotic masterpiece, and said it was even more bitingly satirical than candy. It was more bitingly satirical than candy halfway through page one, said Bacon contemptuously. 
and there was nothing mock about it. He paused. What else? They say I'm a genius, and that I've, we've, done things that have never been done with erotica before. The few who don't mention Shakespeare, Bacon's image winced, keep comparing me to Voltaire. A decidedly minor talent, sniffed Bacon. Still, what do critics know? We're number one on the bestseller list, and we've gone back to press six times in two weeks. Only six, said Bacon. I overestimated the intelligence of the American reading public. Yeah, retorted Marvin. Well, almost three million members of that public have forked over six bucks apiece to read a paperback original by Marvin Pilch. Suddenly, he shifted his weight uncomfortably. With some slight assistance by Sir Francis Bacon, of course. Some slight assistance, roared Bacon. Why, you self-centered, egotistical... Watch your blood pressure said Marvin. I don't have any blood pressure, you imbecile. I'm a computer simulacron. He paused for electronic breath. Such ingratitude. At least it took Shakespeare five or six plays before he convinced himself that he was the author. I apologize. You had bloody well better apologize. I do. Humbly, demanded Bacon. Humbly, agreed Marvin. That's better. We're friends again? We were never friends. But at least we're not enemies. I suppose not, said Bacon. Good, said Marvin, because we've got work to do. I have work to do. That's what I meant. I will require no help whatsoever with my autobiography. Marvin shifted his weight again. Ah. Uh, yes. I'm afraid you're going to have to put your autobiography on the back burner for a few weeks. Back burner? On hold. English is an elastic language, but it does have its limitations, said Bacon. Do try to remain within them. What I'm saying is that we owe another book. What are you talking about? The contract had an option clause. My wife's cousin decided to exercise it. Nonsense. He cannot force you to write another book. Well, said Marvin hesitantly, it wasn't exactly a matter of force. Explain yourself, demanded Bacon coldly. He offered me a million dollar advance for a hard soft deal, 15% straight royalties, 60% of all subsidiary rights, and... You've accepted payment for another book? Marvin nodded. Well, I certainly hope you enjoy writing it. I, uh, thought we might collaborate again. We didn't collaborate the first time. You know what I mean. I know precisely what you mean, said Bacon distastefully. You want me to write Girl Scouts in Leather. Great title, said Marvin admiringly. But no, that wasn't what I had in mind. What you had in mind is of no interest to me. Come on said Marvin. A deal's a deal. What are you talking about? I fulfilled my end of the bargain. Well, not officially. I wrote the book. You had to help me fulfill the contract, continued Marvin. Well, the contract now calls for another book. You mentioned nothing about a contract, protested Bacon. You asked me to write a book. I wrote it and with the absolute brilliance of which only I am capable. My obligation to you is finished. I was afraid you were going to become an attitude case, 
said Marvin with a sigh. And I was certain that you would break your word. It appears that each of us shall have his expectations fulfilled. Well, said Marvin with a sigh of resignation, it was probably beyond you anyway. What was? The book I signed for. Don't be insulting. If meter maids in bondage proves anything, it proves that no form of erotica is beyond my talents to attack and upgrade. Yeah, but this one's for a science fiction line. Science fiction? Well, fantasy, anyway. It's an alternate universe story. What is an alternate universe? One in which history happened differently, explained Marvin. It might be about a world in which Germany won World War II, or where Shakespeare is credited with ghosting all your writings. Where that toad ghosted my work, repeated Bacon incredulously. This really is too much to bear. Suddenly he stared intently at Marvin. Is that what you propose to write? No. You're quite sure? Quite. Bacon glared at him distrustfully. What is the subject of your book, then? Well, I had heard you mention it, and it was the first thing that popped into my mind, and... What is it? The life of King Henry the Ninth. That's not my idea, you fool, snapped Bacon. It's that idiot Shakespeare's. Well, if you feel you can't handle it... It's not that I can't, it's that I won't. Bacon was absolutely motionless for a moment, his eyes fixed on some distant point that only he could see. For one thing, I'd have to write Queen Elizabeth out of the history books. He paused, and then snickered. I never did like her very much anyway. He seemed lost in contemplation for a long moment. Actually, I could turn it out in less time than the last one, since I'd be working within my own milieu. Will you? No. You've got decades to spare, remember? urged Marvin. What's a week between friends? We're not friends. Collaborators, then. Collaborators, snapped Bacon. If you think I'd allow you to write a single word of Henry the Ninth, you subliterate anthropoid. It sold 17 million copies worldwide and was made into a mega-hit movie starring Charlton Heston III as Henry and Bubbles Vancouver as Betty Jean Plantagenet, a role created expressly for the film. More to the point, it won the Hugo, the Nebula, the Nova, the Supernova, the Pulitzer, and even the prestigious Harold Robbins Award. Listen to this, enthused Marvin as he read the reviews to the simulacron inside his computer. The New York Times says it's as if the bard himself had taken pen to paper. I thought time was supposed to take care of critics, muttered Bacon. All it really seems to do is compound their ignorance. And the Saturday Review says there are a few turns of phrase that Shakespeare himself might have envied, continued Marvin. Shakespeare again, snorted Bacon. That dolt would envy a phrase that concisely asked directions to the men's room. Don't take it so personally. Five centuries later, and he's still getting credit for my work. How would you take it? Marvin shrugged. I don't know. Why don't you write something that doesn't read like Shakespeare? A complete, well-constructed sentence doesn't read like Shakespeare. Well, then, write something that doesn't read so much like yourself. I'm never writing again, thank you. Well, if you don't think you can disguise your voice... 
Of course I can disguise my voice, said Bacon defensively. Marvin shook his head. You wrote a smut book and a fantasy, and the critics still compare you to Shakespeare. They are fools. They are your audience, Marvin corrected him. And you can't hide your identity from them. That's what I get for being a ghostwriter in the first place. If I'd written the tragedies under my own name... But you didn't. No, I didn't. And now, said Marvin carefully, if you don't manage to create a new literary persona, everything you write will always be credited to Shakespeare's influence. This is intolerable. I thought you might feel that way, so I signed another contract. No more fantasies or sex books. It has to be something totally different. A hard-boiled detective story, announced Marvin. I don't think I've ever read one of those. I'll run the scanner over some Hammett and Kane and Chandler before I go to bed tonight. They are the three exemplars of the form? No, they're three hard-boiled mystery writers. Boyle and Bubble won the Edgar, the Seamus, the Marlowe, and even the coveted Jacqueline Suzanne Memorial Trophy for positive contributions to the American cultural scene. It also sold 21 million copies and was made into a feature film, a video series, a computer game, a role-playing game, and a chain of soup kitchens. An almost perfect melding of high Shakespearean tragedy and down-to-earth Chandler-esque drama, read Marvin, holding up the New York Review of Books. Again? shrieked Bacon. Am I never to be rid of that meddlesome fool? You're getting on my nerves, said Marvin. I'm the best-selling author of the decade, except maybe for Fritz Hauer, and all you can do is complain. I've read Fritz Hauer's books, retorted Bacon. They're trifles, nothing but trifles. They can't begin to compare to what I've written. Then why don't you relax and feel triumphant or something, instead of harping about Shakespeare all the time, complained Marvin. Don't you understand? The credit should be mine, not his. My work is revered throughout the world, but it is his name that is worshipped, not mine. Don't you realize what that can do to a sensitive, artistic spirit? Boyle and Bubble outsold his entire body of work five to one last month. Doesn't that mean anything to you? Not if every word, every precise turn of phrase, every poetic fantasy that I create is to be credited to his influence, responded Bacon. You are getting to be a regular pain in the ass, said Marvin. You can always turn me off and write these masterpieces yourself, said Bacon with a nasty smile. Don't push your luck, fella. I may just do that one of these days. I, for one, would thank you. Then I could return to that limbo where Shakespeare's name is never mentioned. Not quite yet, said Marvin. I just signed to do a missioner. A missioner? Is that like a mystery? Marvin shook his head. Now, you choose some obscure city or country, spend 300 pages making up its history, and then follow five or six generations of your hero's family. They're very popular. I have it, cried Bacon. I'll write of my own family, and then the world will know who Shakespeare really was. I thought the notion might appeal to you, said Marvin with a triumphant smile. The Bard and the Ghost was Marvin's only artistic failure, though it sold out its first three printings prior to its official publication date. Too far-fetched, said Publishers Weekly. 
Suspending disbelief long enough to read Henry the Ninth was one thing, added Kirkus Review, but when Mr. Pilch asks us to go along with the ridiculous fancy that Sir Francis Bacon actually wrote Shakespeare's plays... Unbelievable, said the New York Times in the shortest book review on record. Bacon was beside himself with frustration. His sole topic of conversation was his contempt for Shakespeare, and he soon reached the point where Marvin would have hired him a psychiatrist, if he had known any who specialized in the treatment of monomaniacal computer simulacrons. Then came the fateful day that Marvin, in an effort to bolster his flagging sales, agreed to appear on a television talk show with his only serious literary rival, Fritz Hauer, whose rise to the top of the sales charts had been as meteoric as Marvin's own. He was waiting in the mauve room prior to walking out on stage when a young man with thick glasses, an ill-fitting tan suit, a blue bow tie, and white socks peeking up over his loafers entered the room. He stared at Marvin for a moment, then took a step closer to him. "'Marvin Pilch?' he asked hesitantly. "'Yes?' "'I thought I recognized the T-shirt. It's the same one you wore on the cover of Time.' The young man extended his hand. "'I'm Fritz Hauer.' Pleased to meet you, said Marvin. Mind if I sit down? Be my guest. Howard sat down and continued to stare at Marvin for a few moments. Is something wrong? asked Marvin. No, I was just curious. About what? Howard shot a quick look at the door to make sure it was closed. Well, I'll never get an answer if I don't ask. Just between you and me, who's your spook? My what? said Marvin. Your ghost. I don't know what you're talking about. Come on, Marvin, said Howard confidentially. You're my only rival on the literary scene. I've studied you thoroughly. I know all about your background, your education, your cultural upbringing. You have no more business writing a classic than I have. We're computer hackers, not writers. Speak for yourself, said Marvin defensively. I will, said Howard. I can't ask for your confidence if I don't give you mine. He paused. You know how people keep saying I write with Rabelaisian wit, even when I'm doing westerns? Howard grinned. That's because I've got Rabelais in my box. Really? Howard nodded. Who's yours? Shakespeare? Is that the way they read to you? Who reads books? That's what the reviews all say. Actually, it's Francis Bacon, admitted Marvin. He wrote all of Shakespeare's plays. So you've got an experienced spook ghosting for you said Howard. Boy, I wish to hell mine was. He's very unhappy about the situation. Oh? asked Marvin, suddenly interested. Yeah. He keeps wanting to write orgy scenes into the cowboy stories. Francis writes exactly what I tell him to write, said Marvin. I envy you, said Howard. Don't. He's very difficult to get along with. He gets furious every time the critics compare my books to Shakespeare. You'd think that after being a ghostwriter for so many centuries, he'd be used to it by now, said Howard. It just seems to make a matter, replied Marvin. I'll be honest with you, I'm thinking of announcing my retirement. I don't know how many more books I can get him to write. Who ever heard of a writer who doesn't want to write? Oh, he wants to write, but he's obsessed with the Shakespeare business. I have to appeal to his vanity to get him to do any contract work at all. I see your problem, sympathized Howard. But still, a spook was willing to write something besides orgies. It must be wonderful. I'd settle for the orgies if he was just a little more pleasant. Who needs pleasant? Just lock him in a room and let him write. 
Hell, Rabelais wastes so much time telling dirty jokes that I've missed my last two deadlines. But he's pleasant? Pleasant as all hell, said Hower. Just lazy. He paused. I mean, it isn't as if he's got anything else to do inside that box. Marvin stared intently at Hower, who stared back at him. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? said Marvin at last. A trade, suggested Hower with a grin. Why not? They're ghostwriters. Who else would have to know? What the hell? It's a deal. Fine, said Marvin, shaking on it. Now let him say I write like an Elizabethan. Hi, Frankie, said Hower. Welcome to your new home. Bacon eyed him suspiciously. It's okay, really it is, said Hower. Marvin told me all about you, and we're gonna get along just fine. Why do I doubt that? Beats the hell out of me. But as a gesture of goodwill, take a look at this. He held a paper up before the screen. What is it? A contract for a novel about professional football. I know nothing about football. Neither does Shakespeare. I am Shakespeare, you dolt. What I mean is, since football is totally beyond your experience, and all your research will be couched in contemporary language, you ought to be able to get out from under Shakespeare's, uh, your own shadow once and for all, and be recognized as a truly original literary genius. You know, there's a twisted kind of logic to that, mused Bacon. Then you'll do it? I'll consider it. You brought the reviews with you, asked Bacon. Yes, said Hower. They didn't compare my writing to Shakespeare this time. No. Finally. Uh, Frankie. I can hardly wait. Let me hear them. You're sure? Of course I'm sure, said Bacon. I've waited five hundred years to be acknowledged as my own man. Okay, said Hower. Start with the New York Times. The Green Bay Massacre, Fritz Hauer's latest novel, begins with a brilliant conceit, but soon degenerates into a slavish imitation of our foremost American writer, the incomparable Marvin Pilch. What? Well, at least they're not accusing you of being Shakespeare anymore. Shut up. Do you want to hear the rest of it or not? No. Read me the New York Review of Books. The Green Bay Massacre... Fritz Hauer's heavy-handed homage to the works of Marvin Pilch. This can't be happening, cried Bacon. Hauer stared at Bacon's image with some compassion, then shrugged. What the hell? Once a hack, always a hack, he said as he walked to the door. Bacon's last plaintive scream seemed to linger in the dusty air of the room, long after Hauer had left to sign a new contract with his publisher. And that was our story. Among other achievements, Francis Bacon established the scientific method. You'd really think that with that sort of intelligence and rigor, he could have found himself a good agent. Alright, so, Escape Pod 107, 8 episodes. This was a piece by a writer I love, Robert Reed, in an unusual style. Again, we had mixed responses. Many people liked it for the strength of its idea, or the unresolved mystery, or the academic style. And again, many people didn't like it for the same reasons. Some folks loved Marbell's deadpan delivery, and some hated it. Nobilis delivered the incisive comment, 
I think I'm getting old. Am I the only one who expects stories to be about people? And there were other debates touched off by this story, but the comment that really caught my interest was from Saith. I'm going to break form here and read his forum post in its entirety. Something to ponder. What if this isn't a story about aliens at all? What if this is actually a science fiction story about science fiction? Do you prefer your SF hard science-based, like Professor Smith, even if that means nothing exciting and otherworldly will happen? Or do you agree with his son, blasting video game spaceships and kicking alien butt? Or do you see yourself in Mary, who had hope for the universe despite what she knew to be true? Do you go for a fandom of cancelled shows like Invasion or Firefly? Or would an episode of Nothing Happening turn you off? Would you, like the Nobel Laureate, invent alternate explanations for holes in the plot? Sure, you agree that there should be more diversity in SF, but would you identify with a tubby Indian with an unpronounceable name? Maybe none of this is what the author intended, but reading the story with these questions in mind takes the story into an interesting debate about what science fiction should be. That's a very cool idea, saith. Whether you're right or wrong, I love the way you... saith it. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives license. All of the rights are reserved by our authors and their ghosts. If you like what you heard today, please tell a friend, and if you can, consider donating via the PayPal link at our site. You may also want to check out our horror podcast, Pseudopod, at pseudopod.org, or buy archive CDs at poddisc.com. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. Our closing quotation comes from the great poet Robert Browning, who said, The aim, if reached or not, makes great the life. Try to be Shakespeare. Leave the rest to fate. We'll see you next week. Have fun.